Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Design of Experience. Apparently, it is by design. 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 Conversations about the ideas that make us feel a tribal devotion to the things we love. So in continuation with our previous episode with Sam Otto, as we dove into videography and film, this week we are going to talk with Casey Hawes, our creative director of design, to get some perspective and learn from his experience in art and that medium um, as we explore what happens after strategy and methodology are established. So welcome, Casey Hawes. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Casey, you have been at 15.4 for quite a while. You've been with us. You have a vast ocean of knowledge to bestow upon us and our listeners. No pressure. There are millions of them. Uh, But before we jump in, I have this theory that the interests and hobbies that we had as a child are a great indicator of the adults that we become. So I want to go back in time. I'm guessing into the age of Nintendo, Hot Pockets, and what I would guess to be your first pair of Nikes. And I want to know what a young Casey Hawes was up to in the 80s. Certainly a Nintendo kid born in the mid 80s. Uh, The original Nintendo was the only gaming console that I ever owned. Certainly had some Nike high tops, but it's the Reebok pumps uh, that made me feel like a uh, superhero as a kid. Time out on the playground just so I can pump up and get faster, you know? If you're getting pumped for basketball, get the full effect of all the new Reebok towels at Foot Locker, where it all begins. I can see you in, in some white high top Reeboks. I feel like you maybe have a couple pairs of shoes that are in that neighborhood currently. Absolutely, yeah. Too many. How many pairs of shoes do you estimate that you own? Probably only 20. Casey, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like if I were in your shoes, <laughs> I would view the shoes you choose as a collection rather than like just acquiring shoes for the sake of acquiring shoes. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that. I've got a few collections going. Used to be a watch collection, but not not so much anymore. Sneaker collection, baseball collection, bobblehead collection, and a few uh, action figures in the uh, in the newest collection. So all stuff that certainly harkens back to my childhood for sure. Casey, I want to know just kind of get a glimpse into what your interests were, how you spent your free time, what you loved in school just as you were growing up before we get into any kind of work talk. I must have missed that question. I don't think I prepared for that one. Oh, come on. You can't remember? I don't remember my own life. Great. What was your favorite television show? You'd come home from school. What was your favorite show to pop on the TV? Ninja Turtles. Ninja Turtles. See, there we go. Okay. Um, When that was over, you'd go outside. What would you do? You would pick up a baseball a Molotov cocktail, a bicycle, or a skateboard? Uh, two Nerf guns and a couple G.I. Joes. Oh, I was close with a Molotov cocktail. So, TMNT, beyond just the drama, the folklore, you know, the characters, the personalities, the crises, what drew you to that show? Was there anything about the style of it, or was it just you were strangely fetishizing turtles? Well, I don't think I was unique in my uh, fandom of the Ninja Turtles. Turtles who are ninjas and that are all brothers. There's a collection of them 
all different colors with different personalities. I was just curious if, if any of those early exposures or say to uh, sports ball, you know, teams, logos, etc. if any of that was formative. There were uh, plenty of times where I would go to the mall as a kid. There would still be record stores in the malls where you would buy cassettes and, and CDs and there seemed to be great value in the cover art that was present. You had to judge the uh, CD by its cover, if you will. Uh, and there are several covers that stuck with me. In middle school, I was listening to alt rock, grunge rock, Nirvana, stuff like that. Alice in Chains, Bush. The cover art today doesn't seem to have as much staying power because it's it feels so disposable. You get different covers for different singles and things like that. People aren't as financially invested in them. Uh, there's no opportunity to really display them like you used to. So while there's still amazing artwork being created for music and now podcasts and things like that, it seems to have lost its edge. It's lost its value a little bit. It was the same way. CDs, tapes. I, I was a diehard tape fan and cassettes are making a comeback, not just in Japan, but locally, you know, with with really weird indie music people like me. But for me, when vinyl was a thing and now it's a thing again, getting a, a piece of vinyl with that artwork, you know, like I'm thinking of one of the most amazing album artwork pieces to me is the BC Boys Paul's Boutique because it's like a trifold uh, record and it just opens up as these massive photographs and and strange you know like the three guys are underwater and they've they've messed with the coloring and stuff so you know when I was exposed to that I was like wait how do they do that and for me because you know I'm 30 years older than you there were no computers um, the telephone had just been invented but I mean seriously for me as a person who was like whoa there's all this stuff out there I'd like to do that for a job you know I'd look to my parents and they'd be like uh, I don't know uh, become an accountant and you know that's not a ding on them but at the time it was to me it was a mystery when we uh, you know Emily has this theory that the interests and hobbies we have as children end up being some kind of an indicator of the adults we become. And, you know, when we were interviewing Sam Otto, our creative director of live action, I talked about the music that caused me to fall in love with music and asked him, you know, was there a, were there a set of films or directors that caused you to fall in love with that visual medium and did that end up informing some of your career choices? I think that's what what Matt is digging at. Do you remember, you know, your first attempt at designing something or were you sort of an illustrator first who then went to design school? How did you stumble into or did you not stumble into it at all? Was your career completely premeditated and now you're, you know, a, a masterful designer, an award-winning designer, the creative director of design at 15.4. I mean, when you ascend to those heights, my friend, you have truly arrived. So we're wondering, you know, what led to your global success as a designer? Do you like to draw or paint or maybe just sketch and doodle? Well, if you do, chances are you have the interest needed to become a serious art student. Well, thanks, Steve. I appreciate that. I do feel like I've reached the mountaintop. Uh, but if we're going back to the beginning, when I was a kid in elementary school, I loved to draw. I loved to draw 
cartoons that I would see on TV, like the Ninja Turtles. And so many people, including your peers and teachers and other folks telling you how good you are at it, combined with your already natural passion for it, just drove me to keep doing it. I always wanted to go to art school. That was kind of embedded in my brain from elementary school on. I always thought that I would become a Disney animator. That was the actual end goal, was to actually draw the cartoons that I'm seeing on TV. So when I was going through high school, there was nothing that really pivoted that, even as I started to mature. But when I did actually go to art school, decided to go into illustration, which seemed to be more versatile at the time instead of a time-based medium. I could still get into animation from illustration if I wanted to. I could go to advertising or graphic design, something more commercial like that from an illustration major. So that was the route that I took and then graduated college and was like, oh, now what? was not prepared for the real world of job hunting, but ended up getting a job at a creative agency and as a graphic designer. And 13 years later, here we are at the mountaintop. Casey, tell us before we get into too much post-college, there's a lot to dig into with your schooling. So tell us like where you went to school and just what that experience is like. Matt will understand that a bit more, but for me and the rest of the, the world that does not know the what the innards of art school are like, please bestow the experience upon me. <laughs> so I first like to do a little bragging and say that I applied to 10 different art schools and I got into all 10. I felt pretty good about myself. I got scholarships at eight of them. And then going in first day, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm the man. And then I quickly realized that, well, they're just letting about anybody into this place, right? <laughs> <laughs> So I ended up at Columbus College of Art and Design in Columbus, Ohio, exotic Ohio. Love Columbus. It was a somewhat easy decision. I got into Micah, which was right down the street. My dad told me that if you're going to go away to school, then go away to school. You don't want me being able to just pop down for lunch, but you also want to be within driving distance within a day. Columbus seemed to be a sweet spot. Uh, RISD in Rhode Island was also high on the list. But just visiting these schools, Columbus felt right and no regrets. I think most art schools do, a, you know, the good ones do a great job of giving you the foundational skills that you need to perform whatever job you're going to perform. Trying to actually get that job is, is another story. So yeah. when I graduated, I felt like I, I had a great skill set, but didn't know how to get a job or what to do with that skill set at that point. So. I think that's a takeaway that a lot of art school grads walk away with, but they're also strange places because you'll get a variety of characters that you may not get at a regular school. The girl whose name is Catherine goes by cat, which isn't weird, but wears cat ears every day, or a guy who dresses in a Harry Potter or Jedi cloak, and that is his whole wardrobe. You just get all kinds of characters, and it's great. And I like to think that I got the best of both worlds. I got the strange and interesting art school world, but I also lived at Ohio State, so I got the big American University lifestyle as well. So. You know, when you enter being a creative professional, there are certain things you have to learn to do. You got to work a little faster because you have a deadline. 
you've got to maintain a budget if you're doing anything that involves cost of materials. There's usually a client you're working for, a brand you're serving, and that kind of limits the creative to be on brand. Your own capabilities are another boundary where you know you have a certain style that you like to draw or design in, or if you're a filmmaker or a musician, you can you know use your imagination to finish the rest. But you you have to somehow synthesize what you're capable of doing with what the creative ask is. And you know we call that creating inside the box, or you know take off the beret. You know because you got to set aside some of your own personal preferences and you know your. Desire to take all night on a project like you might have as an art student. Do you remember that transition from being an artiste or an illustrator or a designer into being a creative professional? Yeah, there, there were definitely some lessons learned in the first couple years as an illustration major. Uh, you know, I, I had advertising and graphic design skills taught in in my program, but mostly focused on illustration foundation. I wanted to infuse that into every piece that I was doing, and didn't always make sense to do it that way. So you just sort of learn over time when the sort of、uh, aesthetic that you want to push is relevant enough. To push it in that project, you also want to do your best work always. But early on in your career, you're willing to work those late nights, give it whatever hours you want to, to try and sell this idea to your company and ultimately the client. But you have to learn how to better organize your time, manage your time, and pick and choose when to push those、uh, creative limits、uh, when it makes sense for the brand and the project. I don't recall how that transition happened. It just—I think it just sort of happens with experience. You learn certain fundamentals and techniques that allow you to apply the science of what you're doing to your creative sensibilities. And as you get better at it and have more and more experience, you can get to where you're going in less time. Casey Hall is talking about art school versus reality. Let's be clear: this is about reality. Talk to us about a time when you had a design assignment in your career where you just had sort of unfettered freedom, and what that was like. Well, first of all, I want to I want to make clear that even when there are guidelines, when there is a box, when there is a brand, there is fun to be had in that little sandbox. There's always interesting opportunities there, so. There was a project or a couple projects、uh, in my past with Geico. There was no box outside of time and budget,、uh, but even those were pretty large and lengthy. The mission was just to create something fun and exciting and interesting that the user can interact with, and then have Geico's name on it. So we did a couple of these iAd projects、uh, back when Apple's iAd platform was still a thing. You would get these banner ads across the bottom of your iPhone or your iPad. You could click on that to expand this full game app-like experience. We could do anything aesthetically, conceptually within that experience, as long as it was fun and it had Geico's name on it. And the takeaway from that is just that it's worth it to a brand like that to have their name associated to a delightful experience like that. There's valuable brand equity being built consciously, subconsciously、uh, into that sort of experience and interaction. So th- those were lots of fun. It, it, it's a unique 
sort of project to get that sort of freedom and latitude, the main lesson learned is how much value there is in that delightful experience. That point right there is something that is so hard for a lot of brands to understand. And it, it's one could say it's easier for Geico. They're such a huge brand. Of course they can. But this idea of valuing emotion in and of itself with no immediate transactional uh, result is huge and something that we always try to help brands understand. That's why we dig so much into personality traits and emotional benefits. Could you give us a little bit of an inside perspective from being someone who is the designer who tries to understand emotive cues as to what would draw the average person to an object, to something material, yet they don't know exactly what it is that draws them to it. They don't have a formal design knowledge to be able to pinpoint, I like A, B, and C, and this is why I like it. What does the designer know that we don't? Well, I, I would say that like Geico, they're playing a long game to try and build brand equity into your mind, whether it's consciously or not. There's that delightful experience. They don't expect you to get a quote right away, even though that's an option. But down the line, when you're searching for car insurance, you will remember that you had a positive experience with Geico. And I think that with automotive design, there's sort of a long game in that as well, where you'll see a wacky concept car and people aren't going to buy that in mass quantities because it's pretty radical. But years later, there'll be a simplified version of that and people will sort of already have this association to that design language that started to happen years ago and want that because there's already cool factor in it that they don't even realize they're associating with something that they saw in the past. And those things sort of trickle down into these smaller design worlds, even in a simplified, low budget sort of way. Are there industries that you find yourself drawing inspiration from that have nothing to do with the industry you work in? I find from a brand strategy perspective, one of my favorite things to do is to look at completely unrelated industries to the client for which we're working. Do you do that? Are there industries that you pay attention to and then draw in inspiration into something completely different? Yeah, fashion design and automotive design, I look at those a lot. I don't know a lot about those industries, but there's some pretty radical stuff that's that's happening in both of those. And there are design languages there that can translate to graphic design and branding. It's a little disappointing to hear that explanation because I think I've given myself more credit than I deserve for having a good eye for aesthetic. No one is immune to the cultural influences of our society, right? So I do think that there's so much that we are taking in as people and consumers and the research that we do in branding and design, we're overwhelmed with influences and we're unaware of some of the stuff that we're holding on to and recognizing as consistent design patterns throughout the things that we're seeing. When you use a term like extracurricular design elements, like what are you talking about to the people who aren't designers? We talk about things like the mark, the word mark, the lockup, you know, the the brand jewelry, you know, these are just sort of vernacular get, get thrown around. When you talk about extracurricular design elements, what does that actually mean? I'm talking about patterns, textures, could be iconography and illustration, things like that the iconic New York subway map will stay iconic because it is simply a structure with purpose. And you didn't have a client say, well, I'd like to add the uh, Statue of Liberty over here illustrated. And I'd like to 
fun it up with some texture and some gradients and just unnecessary graphic elements like that. It is just at its core, a functional piece of design, well-organized, and that is what makes something timeless. All the extracurricular stuff can ground it in an era or a moment. Beyond that, it's just frivolous. Yeah, and the interesting thing is that if you if you read about Massimo and those the design of the Parks Guide or the or the New York subway, he actually did set out, and I don't know if it was in an act of arrogance or not, but he did set out to design those pieces so that no one could ever come and redesign them. Life of a designer is a life of fight, fight against the ugliness, just like a doctor fights against disease. For us, the visual disease is what we have around, and what we try to do is to cure it somehow, you know, with design. You feel that way about like Nike, as you've talked about before in the Nike logo. And did they set out to make it irreplaceable? I don't know, but you, you definitely have a love for that brand and the different phases it's gone through. The Nike logo was commissioned for $14. No way. Yes. Wow. I, I think she has since gotten a couple more uh, dollars and stocks and things like that in Nike. Yes. Good. <laughs> but it's amazing for $14 that she came up with it. Well, let's wrap up with Casey kind of on the note of Nike. I think that's a brand that you love in your everyday life. Can you just talk to us about the love of that brand or other brands in everyday life or designs that you just really identify with and kind of have integrated into your kind of identity or who you are and who you like to express to be? There are several brands, obviously. Nike is one of my favorites. And I like to say that it's so classic and ever-present that it's almost generic. When you wear it, it can be almost a non-statement, but you use it in your own way and make it, make it your own thing. And I think that that's what makes it the brand that it is. Some other brands that I'd like to refer to, and you might laugh at this one, but Gucci. I don't actually own any Gucci, but of the luxury brands, they they present as one of the more colorful and experimental luxury brands out there. So I, I, I like looking at some luxury brands and I think that they do as much interesting work as any of them. And then the last brand I would say, Disney. Like I said before, wanting to be a Disney animator, Disney's the ultimate brand. I mean, what brings the magic of imagination and nostalgia to life better than Disney? And I like always thinking about those stories of Walt Disney himself sort of betting the farm, mm -hmm. betting his own company and his own financial standing several times over to build this empire. Even when he had success, he was willing to bet the whole thing again on things like Fantasia and Disneyland. And even that transition from movies to TV was pretty radical at the time. That's great. I love how you called out nostalgia and imagination for all of our brand work that we do, whether it's like Steve and I strategizing and thinking through all of that methodology, or if it's you or Matt or Sam expressing it creatively. I came up with this phrase recently. <laughs> I don't know where it came from, but emotion is expensive. It is so true on so many levels. And here at the agency, people pay us to evoke emotion and we love doing it out of a passion for trying to to find true meaning and express it creatively. And then for all of us choosing the brands we love, we do it because we want to feel something and it's expensive to go after that. My emotional relationship and friendship with Matthew DeVille has also been expensive in Bella Roma lunches <laughs> and uh, and time. And it's been worth it every every little bit. Wow. Every, san Aww. every sandwich, every minute. 
All right. Well, Casey, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. You all have been lovely hosts. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Casey. Our pleasure. The Design of Experience is produced by 15.4, a creative agency located in Charm City, Baltimore. Produced by Emily Wolf, edited and engineered by Sam Otto and Josh Frisch, with story and creative development by Matt DeVille and Steve Smallman. <laughs>